0: You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Today, I'm talking with Kent Langley, who is an advisor and consultant to technology companies, investors, and executives. Kent is a hands on entrepreneur with a focus on data and data science and tech operations. Areas of focus are technology impact awareness for investors. He consults with board members and senior executives on technology operations and um, software operations, technical due diligence, and things like that for investment and acquisitions for investors. He is also a faculty member of Singularity University, teaching data science and exponential organizations to executive groups, including most senior executives of several Fortune 100 companies. Recent lectures Kent, I believe, are with include companies such as Dow AgroSciences, Ernest and Young, um, Irish Entrepreneur of the Year, Grupo Brescia, Bayer, IAG, um, Coca-Cola, a number of different um, very well-known companies. Your most recent technology research is in two areas, I understand, distributed file systems, such as IPFS and blockchain-based technologies. And um, these are areas of obvious interest to us at Serif. And Kent is going to be joining us at our up-and-coming Serif Summit in Del Mar, California, in a few weeks' time, which I'm really excited about. And I felt it really worthwhile to just provide a peek into Kent's worldview So welcome, Kent. Great to speak with you
1: again. Uh, Chris, thank you for the uh, very kind introduction. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, and I've been looking forward to this, because every time we talk, uh, we just have a great conversation. So this should be more of the same. Yeah, we've had some fascinating discussions.
0: One topic in particular stood out in my mind, and it was actually this uh, weekend, which has just passed. It was sort of brought to the forefront of my mind. It is a coalescing of technology was um, my daughter was mentioning to me how hard it was for her to correctly draw a picture of a horse. She, you know, as they say, every, every little girl wants a pony, right? Um, mm-hmm. So she's got, she has this in front of her, this book, which I bought her, which is How to Draw Horses. And it provides a framework for how to literally brick by brick build your picture, flesh it out, and come away with a great product. Mm-hmm. And so my daughter loves drawing. And this helps her to draw very, very realistic. I mean, better than I can produce um, cool. pictures of horses and other um,
1: animals. Now, I have to put that in the show notes for my kids. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, when I go back and I consider, like, let's 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 kind of dial back the clock and let's consider cave pictures, right? So, as interesting as they are, they're they're awful. I mean, find them interesting not because of the quality of the work, but because of um, you know, because there's, there's not the realism that exists there. You can see that it's an animal, it's got four legs, but you sort of often trying to figure out, is that a cow, is it a horse, or is it is it human on all fours? Um, and, and the truth is that the reason that my daughter and millions of other people on this planet today can produce a picture of substantially better quality is because of the tools at their disposal. And so, you know, if you take something as simple as drawing a picture of a horse, these tools are paper, pencils, and the research and skills of artists which have all been – Uh, coalesced and put into books, uploaded on YouTube and on websites that has allowed for this to be a relatively easy thing to accomplish. Um, And so all of these tools had to come together to achieve this. You know, the invention of the the printing press and paper in and of itself wasn't going to allow you to draw a picture of a horse It required a pencil. Um, And so, uh, you know, what you've got you requ- we required the entire industrial revolution and all of the various things we, we, we required. The tech boom for um, the ease of uh, internet usage things like YouTube, all of these sort of um, technologies that have come to you know, allowing my daughter to sit down and, and have tools in front of her that can allow her to do this. Nobody will discount these things because they're fact. What's harder for humans to recognize is what tends to lie ahead of us. In other words, identifying the fact that a 10-year-old would be able to produce artwork of certain quality when when the printing press was designed is easy to understand. And today, and I know we've discussed this in the past, Ken, we stand at the beachhead of a number of breakthrough technologies, many of which are accelerating each other, confluence, if you will, of technologies. And I know that you've got a lot of thoughts on this, so wonder if you could delve into what sort of technologies you're looking at and how those actually coalesce together to amplify each other
1: yeah, absolutely you know it's it's really interesting that you brought up the cave paintings um you know one of the things that i like to say uh, when when given a given a podium or a soapbox to stand on is that's data right and it's actually been pretty good because uh, we're rec- we're recovering it and reading it millions of years later or at least hundreds of thousands of years later, I guess, in this particular case. And, you know, humanity's got a long history of that. And uh, data seems to underline uh, or underpin a lot of the convergence that we're experiencing. And the reason is because data is essentially, at least these days, most data is digital. You know, and we're seeing unbelievable, truly unbelievable uh, progress. So uh, I I won't be able to show the picture on a podcast, but I want a picture of a turtle shell from circa eighteen hundred. BC, which was a, a really good hard drive for its day, right? And these right. days, um, you know, they've just come out with a beautiful little crystalline uh, storage device. They're calling it 5D storage. It stores approximately 360 terabytes in a, a very small uh, disc-like format. Uh, I guess you could think of it as the evolution of the CD-ROM. But the reason, you the, the, what's interesting is, is why do we need to do that, right? So when you think about technological convergence, Uh, what we are seeing is that there are a number of areas all accelerating exponentially. One of the most well-known, DNA, right? So a little-known fact, uh, you know, one cell in your body, you know, holds approximately 700 megabytes of data, but you happen to have about 37 trillion of those cells in your body that equal around 26 zettabytes of data. Well, why is that possible, right? Well, that's DNA. You know, DNA is an an unbelievable uh, storage mechanism. And and so when we're starting to see these things like 5D storage come along, uh, we're starting to see our abilities uh, to store data in you know, efficient compact formats um, uh, accelerate dramatically. So if you think of uh, the ability to sequence a human genome for under a thousand dollars, it was closer to a billion dollars just a few decades ago. That's one such accelerating technology. That we're seeing. And that's what we mean by that. That pace of change is literally unbelievable. Um, the cell phone you have in your pocket, that's a supercomputer from just a few decades ago. Actually, faster than a supercomputer. And it's billions of times cheaper uh, per unit of compute than the same powered devices from a few decades ago.
0: Right. And I think the important concept that is needed to be understood is that compounding of the technology. I was trying to explain this to my son a little while back, trying to explain to him Moore's law, right? Oh, so yeah. So I I said to him, if I go, son, if I give you a dollar every day, or if I get sorry, if I give you a dollar and then I double it every day, how long is it going to take you to get to a billion dollars? I mean, my son's 11, so he he kind of can't really fathom what a billion is, and he's going, oh, Dad, it'll never. I'll oh, never get to a billion dollars. And I was like, just, just try it. So he sits down with a, with a calculator, and he gets to a week. Right. So after a week, he says, oh, you know, I've, I've done a week there. I said, great. How much have you got? Oh, five hundred and twelve dollars. I said, is that surprising to you? He's like, yeah. You know, I could, I could buy a bicycle with that. I know it's only one dollar. I can turn one dollar it doubles, and I've got five foot. So he's kind of trying to. He's, he's figuring out this this exponential rise. And so I was okay. Keep going, and he keeps going, and he's struggling with a little bit with the math. But essentially, when he gets to thirty-one days, it's at thirty-one that you reach a billion, or over just that's a right. billion. That's right. And then, what's important is that thirty, at, at the thirty-second turn, you have another billion added. Right. That's right.
1: That's and right. so
0: that's that's this world that we that we live in today. And so you talk about DNA sequencing, and you talk about all these things. But the the fact is that we've we've entered. I mean Moore's law is been it's been around forever, I guess, but it's been on the radar and and more understood by humans for sort of probably just over fifty odd years, and uh, and, and referenceable, um, and so we're clearly past the thirty-one click mark.
1: Absolutely, yeah, we've hit the knee of the curve and then some. Um, and when you talk about Moore's law, it was originally envisioned as the number of uh, doublings of the number, doublings of the number of transistors on a chip, right over time. But Correct. now it's more generally understood, or I guess generally applied, uh, to things that become digital or digitized, right? So that's why I mentioned uh, technologies like DNA sequencing, which is digitizing our DNA uh, data storage, right? Which is an obvious one. If you take a look at the growth rate of data uh, in the world, right? Think about all of the sensors that are coming online. Uh, we're going to have a hundred, probably a hundred trillion sensor economy uh, just in the next, you right? know, I'll go on a limb and say the next two, this is 2016. So the numbers I usually throw out there are 2020, 2025. So so think about that. So that is clearly an area where we're undergoing an exponential doubling, a sort of an exponential growth curve, right? So what happens is when you start to see, and, and again, I'll use the DNA example, or I'll use uh, there are a handful of others, but what you see is when you have, say, the cost of a computer chip is is subject to Moore's law, then you have the cost to sequence DNA subject to Moore's law, then you have the cost of data storage subject to Moore's law. This is the convergence you're talking about. If we just take those three, that's why you see. The price to sequence a human genome dropped from a billion dollars, Craig Ventner's project, to less than a thousand dollars today. And there are companies that own dozens and dozens of sequencers that are capable of sequencing full human genomes very quickly for very, very little money. So it won't be long before when you go to the doctor, say you have cancer, they take a biopsy of the tumor, that tumor will be sequenced, you'll be sequenced and a custom drug will be made. This is the kind of thing that's becoming possible uh, faster and cheaper and just even at all uh, compared to what it's ever been possible before. It's truly outstanding. It's interesting you talk about the,
0: what is essentially medical care then. And the yes. other day I was talking with a, with a gentleman who's an insurance salesman and you know, his, his, we were at a barbecue and he's saying, well, what is it that you do? And I was talking about some of the things that we do in terms of our you know, venture capital investments. And I was talking about these sort of accelerating technologies. And I realized that within probably, you know, five minutes, he was glazing over and he couldn't really, I, I wasn't, I wasn't resonating at all. Story of my life. No. <laughs> and so and so I kind of I, I stopped myself short and I thought I have to make this relevant to his world. And so, you know, he's an insurance salesman. And I said, okay, well, think about it like this. Think about what insurance is, okay, and what can impact insurance. And how this might actually affect your industry, and so I started delving into things like autonomous vehicles. You know, so when you have, when you take away human error in terms of driving a vehicle, what does that do to the insurance company and the insurance model of insuring a vehicle? Okay, so it it massively, massively impacts it because now you have this data-driven um, environment where you can you can understand that a computer has a certain level of failure points, and you can uh, you can amortise that across a life cycle of a um, of a paying customer, and you can much more uh, much more clearly identify what your actual risk structure is. Whereas when you've got an individual, the risk structure can change massively depending on whether they've, taken, they've had a couple of drinks or whether they're a bit grumpy that morning or tired or whatever it is, and human error can play a part in any accidents. And so there's that. And then when you talk about the insurance industry, think about it's it's guesswork, right? So if I'm going to insure Kent Langley and on um, health insurance, I'm going to look at your history. You're going to tell me whether you've had diabetes, you know, whether there's any history of cancer in your family, all these sorts of things. Is, I can get as much data as I can, but it is nowhere near as clarifying as sequencing your DNA. So as soon as I right. can get that, what does that do to my industry? It's, it's massively disruptive. And so you get
1: this, um, this disruption. I know it's just something as,
0: as simple as insurance, and it affects many, many industries.
1: Insurance is a fantastic example, and there's two really important points I would I would that come to mind immediately when you talk about insurance. I'm actually doing work for an insurance company right now. Um, it's a it's an active project, so I um, won't dig into it a lot. But I'll say that um, if you sequence, if say you're the insurance insure or put yourself in the shoes, right? You're the one that collects the premiums. It's your job to pay out claims. You sequence my DNA and you see that I have a family history of say type two diabetes. You can deny me. Yeah. Okay. You know that my health insurance costs are going to be higher at a later age and you know that I'm going to live longer. Statistically, your actuarials will tell you that. Right. So I think there's also a sort of a scary side to this as well. But then on the flip side of that, if you don't guess what we have, the internet, right? This is the biggest exponential technology of all the internet, right? It's connecting uh, almost five billion people today, uh, yeah. and soon to be probably a, almost a near full coverage of of everyone on the planet that wants to be online. You'll have to want you'll have to not want to be online to not be online quite soon, um, because of the sort of ambient uh, internet or ambient computing technologies and passive being sensed passively to you. But one of the real innovations that I'm seeing in the insurance space in particular uh, is is what we're calling peer to peer insurance. Mm-hmm. Right, And so this is the idea that w- why bother uh, with a mid-tier insurer when you sure. and your community or some group that you're a part of can pull your money together, use technology like the blockchain for proof of work, proof of claim, uh, complete and total transparency, use digital currencies, uh, right, to move the value around. You don't ever even need to move real money uh, to support these kinds of things as long as you can back the claim pool. Uh I think that this is where it's all going uh, with regards to insurance. And I mean, we can talk about insurance all day, uh, but it's just such a ripe um, sort of low hanging fruit area for disruption uh, and convergence of technologies from community crowdsourcing, uh, blockchain technologies for distributed transactions where you do not need a centralized authority to manage those transactions. I mean, this is some of the most exciting stuff that's happening in the world in terms of innovation and business models
0: anywhere. So let's dig into one thing there because, you know, I have these discussions as I'm sure you do with people and there's there's, there's always a fear of the unknown and there's a fear of um, information which is currently either not known or private being out there in the public. And so you mentioned, for example, if you had um, a history of diabetes and would an insurer actually want to insure you. And I think what people tend to to miss is that in an environment where the playing field gets opened up to many, many participants, you have niche providers that can come in. So purely on the insurance side of things, you would have, um, ins- I mean, if, if I was going to set up a particular insurance company, um, I might go after specifically clients in, uh, that have um, illnesses and provide a product that that suits them and that fits them. And the other concept, I guess, is one of, you know, you don't want, it's one thing claiming on your insurance. Insurance is something that you never want to claim on, right? I mean, you you insure your house in case it burns down, but you never want to claim on that insurance. Just as if you insure your health, you never really want to claim on that. Um, So it comes down to actually identifying things that you might not have known particularly well. So by sequencing your DNA, you actually have a far better understanding of your own health. And so if you have a predisposition, for example, to something like diabetes, it's far easier to prevent it actually um, surfacing than it is suddenly coming to the age of maybe 40 or 50 and going, oh, my gosh, I now have diabetes. Yes. Um, so, So it's exactly. preemptive medical um, care on, a, on an incredibly bespoke um, basis, which... Is um, no um, it's far more valuable than any risks that you have, where an insurer might not insure you, for example. Well, which, as they- I mentioned, I don't think it's an issue. I think that the niche providers will come. Uh, the
1: market, if it's allowed to function, will provide. Well, you, you point out something really interesting. If it's allowed to function, uh, with some of the more interesting models, I'm seeing are coming up in the develop. What we I guess you call the developing world, uh, you know, in Africa, in India. Uh, in parts of Asia, some really interesting things. But the uh, you know the reality is that also because of the the power of the crowd, the the power of technology to drive costs down. So the same way that you can, you know, build and run a data center for a couple of thousand dollars a month that would have cost you a million dollars a month uh, twenty years ago, right? The same thing is going to happen to these industries. So you're, I, I couldn't agree more uh, that you're going to see. You know, potentially thousands of niche uh, micro insurers pop up that have very, very specific uh, purposes. Of course, then the question comes, how does someone who needs them find them? <laughs> but you know that that is definitely uh, something that we're gonna see happen. But we're seeing this happen, not just in health insurance, we're seeing it happen in agriculture uh, with crop insurance. We're seeing it happen in real estate. We're seeing it happen everywhere. So uh, to your point about insuring your house as opposed to your health. And I think we're even gonna see that in data. Uh, how do you ensure your data, right? This is something that is one of my areas of research that I'm very, very interested in.
0: It's a fascinating one because, you know, um, my background, Kent, is actually is, um, originally as an investment bank carrier and as a trader. And I've always had a, a very global macro orientated view to markets, um, trading currencies and bonds and equities and all sorts of things like that, and looking for these massive trends that, that shape society and participating in them. And so it's a a distinctly different uh, background to yourself and to many people in the space. But one of the things that, um, you know, you notice is the value. We've been through the industrial age where most of the value in the world was actually held in fixed assets. And so you had railroads and you had mines and you had uh, businesses that had... The value in fixed assets. And so that's not the world that we live in today. The value in most things today is in intellectual property and in data. And so if that's the most valuable thing, just as in the Industrial Revolution, you would insure your mine or your railroad or your canal or anything of that nature, data insurance and, and the protection of that data and the insurance of that data is a fairly untapped market, which is literally exploding it has exploded for a long time now but it's just it's growing enormously as you correctly pointed out yeah so couldn't agree more um do you, what are what are your thoughts on that and what is where do you see opportunities in that space
1: well so i i think that there are two real interesting there's a real interesting bifurcation when you just say the word data there's data um, generated by people and about people right so you and me like individual human beings you know, you and I are two of the 7.5 billion or so people that are currently living, uh, and we're generating data right now, uh, and, we're, and we do it as we move through our lives. I think that's one class of data, right? But it's just as much of an asset uh, as any other, any corporate data you could imagine. Just ask Facebook. <laughs> just ask Google. They make plenty yeah. of money off of our personal data, right? Um, and I think we're going to see a massive shift uh, in the consumer behaviors, I I wish I could tell you how long this is going to take, uh, but the awareness is beginning to rise so that we're starting to see uh, people actually care what happens to that photo they posted somewhere, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, uh, and and like to have some ability to track that. And again, this is where the blockchain can come in to play because you can have actual proof of ownership um, without a a centralized authority, right? Uh, And then also, when you when you pull back from the consumer side, you take a look at the business side. Well obviously businesses are some of the biggest uh generators of data anywhere. And so one of the trends that I I am extremely interested in and, and pursuing is uh how do I store all that data? How do I persist it in a reasonable and affordable fashion with having, without having to invest a billion dollars every every few years in a data center, right? If I'm a Facebook or if I'm somebody like that, or if I'm just an aggregate of a lot of smaller companies that equal that much, you know, Amazon obviously uh, is doing a wonderful job with the cloud. So is Google on providing various types of storage and compute and networking capabilities. But I do think that we're going to see that uh, drift away from these sort of centralized walled garden type storage uh, facilities and compute facilities to a much more decentralized and distributed um. Uh, capacity, and by that, what I mean is your phone, your laptop, your car; those are all perfectly viable servers in the cloud. Yep. That is a sea of change, right? It's literally a seismic shift, uh, and we're going to see. I, I, I'm i I'm fond of sort of waving my arms and saying it's cloud all the way to the edge. Don't you know that? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know,
0: you know. This brings up an interesting topic. I mean, if you think about IPFS and Probably a lot of listeners don't understand that, but the way that I can explain, explain it a little, bit. Feel like, well, is if people understand torrents, right? Yes, um, some do. Uh, <laughs> so, many do because they, you know, they download music and, <laughs> and, and you know things that they probably shouldn't download. But the way that that works is essentially it's it's a whole lot of peers that are all um, sending you little bits of information, right? Yes. Yeah. So that in itself is a very distributed, decentralized structure. So if there's, if there's, you know, let's say, um, let's say that you, Kent, uh, was you know, downloading the latest, um, I don't know, Lady Gaga movie or um, sound, song, right?
1: Sure. Yeah, Lady Gaga so, at the so Super Bowl, right? She did there, a great what, job. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. um, I didn't watch it, but yeah. I'll take <laughs> a word for it. Um, yep. So now there might be, I don't know, 500 peers that are sending you that information so if one of those peers gets knocked off his perch or um, drops offline or something like that it doesn't change the structure it doesn't it doesn't affect the download um, so there's because there's, there's no centralized um place that right. is that needs to get taken down that's right and so if you think about data storage as you mentioned on my phone i've got spare data Spare, spare storage on my machine, on my hard drive, I've got spare storage. What if I could rent that out? What if everybody could rent that out? Almost like if you think about energy, how you know if you've got a surplus in energy, and you've got some system set up in your home where you're utilising solar panels and wind or whatever it is, and you can feed some of that back to the grid. Essentially, what you're doing is you're saying, I have this excess capacity, and I can, I can, I can give it back, and others yes. can use it. Yeah. So it's same structure with respect to data uh, data storage is everybody on the planet. If we just took all of the devices, just say take something as simple as mobile phones, how much storage space exists on mobile phones? It is massive. That's not currently being utilized. Yeah. And so, you know, using using that in a in a peer to peer structure massively leverages what currently exists, and yeah. it's it's and it's it's similar to that torrent system or the peer-to-peer system, which is decentralized.
1: Yeah. So, um, so there, there is a company that's doing exactly that. And they seem to be doing a rather good job of it at the moment. They're in early, early release mode, right? So they're not, uh, uh, probably not widely known and, and not massively at scale or anything, but it's a company called Storage S-T-O-R-J dot uh, I-O. You know, check that one out and the, uh, you can add that to the, uh, any show notes you might make, but um, the interesting thing about that is they're both companies like Storage AI are, are leveraging. Uh, again, this is coming up a lot, right? And it will continue to come up a lot for everybody. IPFS stands for the Interplanetary File System. Quite a grandiose name. But the idea is that it is a, it is a distributed peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer file system. So just like you have a file system on your computer, I don't care if you use Mac or Windows, it doesn't matter, um, you do have a file system. Uh, and what this does is it sort of imagine a, a virtual file system that it consists of every device uh, that's connected to the network. And that's what you're talking about. That's what IPFS is and, and can be. Uh, and then when you have things like bl- the blockchain that allow you to irrefutably prove who owns a piece of data, where that data came from, and then the the, uh, the, the distribution The network distribution part, which you were alluding to, 500 clients streaming you something simultaneously, if one drops off and the rest don't matter, it doesn't matter. You can just get it all from somewhere else. This does something else really amazing. Um, It removes uh, some of the need, not all, but some of the need for these really huge historical backbones. What does that mean? It means the internet itself is dramatically changing, right, From Mm -hmm. a sort of a centralized hub and spoke type model, traditional airplane traffic patterns, uh, to something that looks much more like a distributed mesh where every node is connected to every other node by some number of um, uh, hops. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like a group of people, right? That sounds like a graph, right? A, A human network. So our technology systems are beginning to mirror uh, in some ways, the way our human systems work. And then the number of connections, how far away you are from any one piece, one other person or one other piece of data is also falling, right? So uh, we always heard about six degrees of separation. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. probably remembers that. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon, I think it was back in the day. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're actually connected by many fewer degrees now. You Check your LinkedIn. Anybody you meet anywhere you're probably no more than three hops away, right? That's changed. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, and that's true not of just people, but also the data we make. And so, uh, and, and it's also driving costs down extremely quickly.
0: So, before we sign off, yeah, Kent, if you were to look at, we've been looking at a number of these technologies additive printing, IPFS, blockchain, synthetic biology. And I'm always cognizant of timing, right? And so one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time on is looking for areas whereby you have um, a, a disruption phase that takes place where your user adoption takes hold. And interestingly, one of the things that my research team came up with was most technologies, you know, they go through a phase cycle, Um but where you have mass adoption take place, it takes place when user adoption hits about between 17 and 18% of any particular market, which is interesting because it actually um, rolls straight through into Pareto's law, the 80-20 principle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so once you've got that sort of at 17 to 18%, we'll call it 20% for easy numbers, um, then you have mass user adoption um, takes hold. With that in mind, where do you believe, any of these technologies lie today. I'm of the belief that we're we'll probably at that space in blockchain and in
1: additive printing, but
0: I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are.
1: Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of areas we could talk about, right? More than we can probably get into in one one short show. Uh, That's okay. Th- we can do yeah. it in Del Mar. <laughs> yeah. know It's gonna be. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. The uh, if you think about additive printing, right? 3D printing. We're already printing houses we're printing drugs we're printing uh we're printing replacement body parts uh we're i mean it's it's pervasive right i think it's past that point right we mm-hmm. you know it, it it the fact is it's not even big news anymore when something new gets 3d printed i mean we just printed a rocket parts that flew right and you know i mean that, that's just unbelievable, right? Because everybody will tell you if you talk to traditional manufacturing folks, oh, no, you can't use 3D printed materials. The structural integrity is not there. Um, yeah, I print, somebody printed a rocket part and it flew. So don't tell me about
0: structural integrity. Yeah, there's a company down the road here that does titanium 3D printing. They're actually the largest company in the world doing it. and They print for aerospace and things like that. And um, that statement that you just mentioned that people make is mm-hmm. – um, is factually incorrect
1: it's a myth, right it's a myth yeah. uh, so and I, and I run into it all the time all the time so where I think that we're going to see well, let me put it this way it, it remember what I said it's it's when things get go when things go digital and it's when things sort of disappear right so when does something like three d printing become so common that it's no longer news uh, so so I think the news cycle and I think i think actually gartner does a reasonably good reasonably good job of this with their gartner hype cycle so i always look for those things that are on the the right hand side of the peak of the hype right Right. anything sliding down that curve is falling out of the sort of main hype, the top of the hype phase but that probably just means it's a little boring to everyone now because they've heard it a thousand times so you know that's where i look first uh and you know i'm I am not immune to the too early uh, thing. I, I've, I've been too early to markets more times than I would prefer to admit because it's always financially painful. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, the reality is that, you know, technologies like 3D printing, technologies like blockchain, blockchain is probably around the peak of the hype cycle right now, but it's starting to fall off and it's disappearing into things. Uh, we're going to see notaries disappear, right? Why would you ever need a notary at this yeah. point? You know, yeah. if you do think you need one, it's just because you don't know another one. For, it's for lack you know? of thinking. Yeah, and exactly, and and I think that we're going to see this with. Um, I, I think one of the most, one of the more exciting projects right now uh, is the um, Ethereum project uh, for the blockchain because of the smart contracts. So smart contracts are not going to eliminate lawyers, but lawyers are going to have to learn a bit more code. Right or a little bit more logical, structured thinking. So we're going to see massive change uh, in any industry where uh, contracts are part of it. Uh, so mm-hmm. you know, the venture capital space is is a good one. Uh, so all of that stuff can be done uh, without without a centralized resource uh, like a notary uh, or. You know, so you're still going to want your lawyer probably for a good time to come but the uh, the reality is that I think we're going to see massive innovation and disruption in sort of those professional services areas there's whole books written about this right um, and this is part of what people are calling the fourth industrial revolution which you referred to the previous ones uh, and it's all driven on the digit on digitization demonetization dematerialization uh, and a handful of other uh, things of that nature. So, you know, I, I don't know if I entirely answered your question, but those are some of the things that I think of. Uh, no, no, that's when, good when it comes up.
0: Lastly, before we sign off, I guess what we're talking about, you know, Kent, is, is massive decentralization. And if I look around the world today, I think where is the largest coalescing of centralized forces? Mm. And it's interestingly to be found in government. Yeah, and that disruption is coming. Um, And coincidentally, at the same time, if we look at the fiscal balances and things like that of governments, certainly in the Western world, um, (laughs) there's this massive peak. Um, So that's going to bring about probably a lot of chaos and change. But um, when I look at if there is a light at the end of that particular tunnel, it's exactly what we just discussed today.
1: Absolutely, and 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 there are, there are a whole new organizational regimes rising up, right? So I'm fond of implementing Holacracy at startups, for example, because it puts a, dis- a discipline to the process of of communications, in particular, within your organization. You know, I'm really fond of tools like the business model canvas, a new project that I just uh, just completed working on, called the exponential organizations canvas. Um, and in the areas in which we're trying to apply all these types of technologies, whether they're procedural type technologies or actual you know, technologies like 3D printing or things like that or and I'm going to quote the Singularity University um, sort of global grand challenges here, uh, food, education, water, security, global health, energy, environment, poverty, and space. Right. these are the broad areas and within those there are literally trillions and trillions of dollars worth of opportunities um, I, this is truly an exciting time to be alive
0: I'm definitely with you on that Kent and I'm really really looking forward to catching up in a few weeks time and um, having discussions around a cold drink
1: absolutely <laughs> I can't wait and it's the weather should be beautiful down there so
0: Likely it will be. Well, thanks Absolutely. for your time,
1: Ken. Right. Thank
0: you, Chris. We'll chat soon. All right. Thank you for tuning in. CapEx Big Question podcast is sponsored by Serif, an exclusive private global network of individual investors and family offices dedicated to growing their wealth exponentially by investing in game-changing global trends. To learn more about Serif, go to serif.vc. That's S-E-R-A-P-H, done. V for Vicky, C for Charlie.